You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan. I have my co-host here, Stephanie Seymour. Howdy, everybody. And Rob Levy. Hey, hello. And we have the enormous pleasure of being joined by a special guest today. This is Mr. Richard Evans, who is the author of Listening to the Music the Machines Make, Inventing Electronic Pop, 1978 to 1983. Mr. Evans, thank you so much for joining us. It is such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much. It's been brilliant to be invited. The book came out in November in the UK, and we are recording this show on January 29th. The book just came out here in the US three days ago, January 26th. Um, We've all had the opportunity to read it, and like I was telling you earlier, I have thoroughly enjoyed this book. Um, So we're very excited to talk to you about it. Well, thank you very, very much for the compliment. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm delighted, delighted to talk about any of this. <laughs> um, I'm wondering if you can talk about how the book came about, because there's a lot. And the germination of the book is probably just as fascinating as the book itself. <laughs> well, let, let's hope so. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the idea of the book sort of came from several different directions over quite a long period of time. Um, I'm a a great reader of books about music. Um, I'm I'm a a big fan, and it's like I'm quite indiscriminate in in what I read. And so they're not all electronic music biographies or or about the electronic music genre particularly. Um, But that's kind of where my personal interests sort of lay, uh, although, you know, my my musical church is quite broad. Um, And because I read all these biographies, um, I started to realise that when people write, when people sit down and write about their life, um, so I'm talking about autobiographies here, really. Um, they're, they're looking back at these times from 35, 40 years, and it started to occur to me that not through any fault of anybody's own, but it felt that inconsistencies were starting to creep into some of these stories. Um, so I think you know, it's like people remember things differently because it's been such a long time. Uh, and also because the things that they've achieved have been so lauded uh, and and so sort of popularized um, that there's almost like a myth built up around around these events. And I thought it would be interesting to go back to the original time. So it's like a, it was almost like a time travel book um, in, in a funny sort of a way. Um, and I thought it would be really interesting to go back and look at the original music press. Um, that was happening at the same time as these events. Um, And as I sort of thought through this, I I realized also that no one had actually done this uh, with electronic music. There are are sort of books about other other genres of music that have kind of taken the same sort of approach, but there wasn't one for this. And it felt like an opportunity, and it felt like something that I'd be really interested in doing and, and taking on. 
and then I basically did nothing with the idea for probably about three years. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in my head, I was writing a book about electronic music. Um, and at, at, the, at that point, I went to the British Library in London, um, which is an absolutely fantastic resource um, for any sort of any for for anyone. But if you're interested in music in particular, because you can literally walk in into their reading room and you can go up to this shelf and you can pull off these huge bound volumes. And they're probably this thick, you know, maybe sort of you know, five or four or five inches thick um, and that they contain all the, for example, NMEs, you know, for 1978. Right. And you can choose your year and you can just take these huge books and put them on a desk and I just went through them. And it's like I did the NME and the Melody Maker and Sounds and Smash Hits and every popular music title I could think of and every popular culture title I could think of, I looked at for, for the book. Um, and it every time I found a reference to something I thought might be might be of use, you know, one of the bands that, that that made it into the book, I took a photo of that reference on my phone and I ended up with a th th literally thousands of photographs on my phone. Uh, and it was almost like these photographs were jigsaw pieces. And then mm -hmm. from those jigsaw pieces, I could build the book that 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 that, that, it, that it became. It's incredible the amount of information packed into this book. I could not yeah even believe the amount of yeah. quotes and data really just you know yeah. char the chart information it was it was incredible and yeah. I, I feel like i feel like there's no wasted words mm -hmm. like <laughs> there's nothing superfluous everything is so to the point it's such a well-crafted book i think well yeah. that's that's brilliant here i think if i'd have known what a mammoth task it would have been at the beginning, then maybe we wouldn't be talking now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it must have been daunting to look at your pictures yeah. and then like, yeah. how do I compile this, you know? And, I, and I, I loved how you made a reference point linking punk to electronic music. I just yes. thought that was really great. Cool. You just sort of laid that out in a really cohesive and wonderful way. Yeah, I, like saying it, that it was the, the two tenets of punk, like the DIY spirit and the mm -hmm. belief that you said education, knowledge, and virtuosity was no longer a prerequisite for making music. Like that is so perfect for this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it must have been so much fun um, to, 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 to be a musician in those times, you know, those immediate post-punk years, you know, because all of a sudden people had access to electronic instruments. You know, the, 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 the first affordable synthesizers started to become available. Um, you know, they, it was one of those choices. You could spend your money on a guitar or you could spend your money on a, a primitive synthesizer. And people started mm. doing, doing the latter. Um, and, and they'd come out of punk and they were sort of inspired by punk, I think, um, but not so much musically. I think musically punk was a little bit old fashioned, you know, in lots of ways. It was, mm -hmm. you know, the same instruments. It was the same sort of structures. Um, it was just faster <laughs> uh, and probably, <laughs> probably a bit angrier. Uh, and then you know it's like people not only bought in into this 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 DIY attitude that punk gave them that they could do these things themselves they could release their own music you know they could make their own music they could set up their own studios you know in a bedroom or a cellar or you know wherever it was that they could find some space um, and um, uh, and then they could they 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 could they could take these their careers into their own hands. But I don't think they really expected them to be careers as as such. Mm. Um, it's like there was this sort of amateur dabbling, um, you know, which was probably the the root of some of the most interesting and exciting of those early records. 
And it's, it's funny how it sort of all came for a full circle in a way to now where people do the same thing. But at the, the, but the difference is at that time, nobody had the internet and you could not get your music out. You needed record companies. Absolutely. Yeah. And all of a sudden you didn't need record companies. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and also I think that these people, like you say, there, there was no internet. So there was no, there was no one making those connections between the bands um, so they were almost operating in little voids. Grassroots, yeah. Which was which is really interesting because, you know, it's like, although Sheffield had several bands working in this area, you know, they weren't aware necessarily of what was happening in Liverpool with orchestral manoeuvres in the dark uh, or London, which is where the normal were. Manchester, uh, like Duran Duran and or, stuff. Or Manchester, yeah, exactly. And it was only gradually that these people started to realise that there was other people working in this sphere and they weren't alone. And I think sometimes they were a little bit indignant that that was the case because they wanted to be the only ones doing this. Um, and, and also it was quite, probably quite a relief, a validation, I suppose, that they were onto something that was in, of interest to other people as well. The point that you're making about um, the affordability of synthesizers is something I want to come back to in a minute. But I want to I want to go right back to the very beginning of the book. Um, I, when I first started reading it, I was kind of surprised that your beginning point was that famous David Bowie top of the pop performance of Starman. And it kind of made me wonder, A, the significance of that moment is, is something that's been talked about a lot, but not necessarily specifically with electronic music. But also, I'm, I'm curious to know, when you're putting a book like this together, how do you decide what your starting point is? And how did you pick that point as this is where my story begins and where I'm going to run from? It's interesting, actually, because I wasn't quite sure where to start the book. I can imagine. Um, yeah, <laughs> and, and and I wasn't really that sure where to finish the book either, <laughs> which is why it's so big. <laughs> um, I, I knew that there had to be a section at the beginning which kind of qualified what was about to happen. Um, so it's 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 broadly I've, I've called it inspiration. The section is called inspiration, mm. and it's kind of everything that came before 1978, which I felt was an important enough influence on the people who I write about um, to, to, to be worth mentioning. Uh, and the one name that comes up again and again and again um, in electronic music and probably in all forms of music is, is David Bowie, you know, who was, you know, an absolutely remarkable artist, as, as I don't need to tell you. Um, <laughs> uh, but because he, he, because there was this moment, this, this sort of fabled moment um, in 1972 when he was on Top of the Pops in, in the UK, uh, and he performed Starman, and so many different artists have picked up on that moment as a moment of, um, it kind of enabled them. It made them feel that they were part of something cosmic, perhaps, you know, something special, something technological and, and, and beyond. Uh, and I think that that was enough to get people interested in music before perhaps they were interested in making electronic music. Um, so, so that seemed like a great place to start because it was because, like you say, it was an iconic moment. People would recognise it, um, and I liked the fact that the book, my book about electronic music, starts with an acoustic guitar. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. <laughs> yeah, it's very poetic. Uh, and then when it came to sort of starting the book proper, and it, it starts in 1978 and goes to 1983, um, it was either going to be 1977 or 1978. Um, and I couldn't quite decide for a while whether to include I Feel Love, 
um, Donna Summers yes. record as, as the beginning of a new thing or the end of an old thing. And That's because it was so interesting. Yes. Yeah. Alan, you talked about that in another podcast about that yeah. song. Yeah. The album that that song comes from, it's structured where every song kind of represents a different decade. And then the last track propels you into the future. And and as uh, Brian Eno said, when he rushed into the studio with David Bowie and said, I have just discovered the future of music. It's, a, it's an yeah. incredibly clever structuring of an album. And that last track sets everything that's going to come down the road electronically absolutely yeah no it's an, it's an absolutely brilliant track you know and even today you yeah. can put it on and it doesn't it doesn't date you know it it still sounds powerful and exciting and it, the, the, for, we were talking about the importance of punk and for me it's kind of a punk record in, in mm -hmm. a funny sort of a mm -hmm. way it, it has that sort of attitude to it um that 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 sort of you know the sort of the minimalness and the the sort of the the, the way it kind of grabs you yeah um, but but yeah I, I was aware of that sort of that structure of the album um and 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 that was kind of where i wasn't quite sure whether to sort mm. of finish the first bit or start the second bit with, with yeah. that record and in the end I, I decided the disco was kind of part of the influences so it should stay on the disco side rather than the you know the the, the, yeah. the innovators and, and the new generation side mm -hmm. i remember when that song came out i was kind of young at the time mm -hmm. and i was fully aware that it didn't sound like anything else that i'd ever heard i i, I wasn't really sure why i didn't quite understand like i i didn't hear anything that sounded like a drum or a bass or whatever but i didn't understand why it was as different as it was. It was later on that, of course, yeah. I realized, you know, and, I, and understood. That was but. definitely something, Alan, that I was thinking about as I read this book, because I remember, you know, when I was 14, 15, 16, 17, I mean, like, it didn't, it didn't matter. It, it was just like this new sound. You knew there was a new sound. You didn't really, you couldn't really put your finger, finger on it or articulate it. I mean, everyone knew, okay, synthesizers, but it just, the whole, uh, genesis of the scene it wasn't apparent to me as a young teenager yeah. you know the, the history of it but you know obviously looking back it's comprehensive and and definitely has a spark like you said <laughs> and i remember you know i was i wasn't even 10 but my brother came home and had it and played it over and over it's one of the probably one of the two or three first records i remember hearing my brother play over and over and over like relentlessly and i've got his or his copy of it now his right. the 12 the whole 12 inch thing with like super long and it's a beast i mean you're totally right about saying that it's punk rock because it's mm -hmm. it uh it's kind of got this sophisticated veneer but underneath it there's a really rawness to it right Absolutely. and i th yeah. and i think that rawness sort of transfers later into some of the electronic stuff too and you know, one of the things I, I was going to talk, uh, I wanted to ask you about too is um, you mentioned Kraftwerk, right? And, and Noi as, as starting points. And you, you also have this movement in Germany with electronic music at the same time. And a lot of the folks in England are like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is all happening at the same time. And I think it's, I feel love is kind of where that all comes together. Right. And it's, it's and that was, that was, it was recorded in Germany. Right. I mean, I think most of the George, the Marauder stuff and certainly with Donna, I think a lot of that stuff was done in German studios. So they're there soaking in that that influence. 
Yeah, I, I believe that it was recorded in Munich, um, in, in George M. Roder Studios in Munich. Yes, yes. Um, I wouldn't wouldn't swear to that. So uh, I no, I, I believe that's right. <laughs> yeah. And, um, that, and just jumping ahead a little bit to, I think it was a quote that Nick Rhodes from Duran Duran says about how much Giorgio, Giorgio Moroder was a like a key influence on them. Mm. Uh, yeah. You know, and not just from from that song, but I think other other productions and stuff. But yeah, I think it was really important that this particular generation they they were they were they were less um, less wed to certain genres, um, and they were much happier to bring in these different influences in a way that would have been considered wrong in, in the in the punk to, in the punk days. But they were pu- pulling in stuff from the prog rock bands. They were pulling in stuff from disco. Um, they were pulling in stuff, you know, the electronic stuff from Germany that you were just talking about. You know, it's like, and an, an all of these, re- all of these genres have sort of key records that, you know, that, that sparked imagination, sparked inspiration. Um, and they sort of unashamedly took these things and sort of fed them into, into something new. And because there were so many of them, the thing that, 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 that came out of the other end of the, of the machine um, was, 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 was felt like it was, equally new and equally innovative innovative and, and striking mm. something also that we alluded to before but the fact that you know there was different scenes in different cities and whatever but it it, it remind it was reminding me of like um sort of like a Beatles slash beach boys rivalry rivalry sorry rivalry where uh like one band would try to up the other band with their next release and it was just like this constant thing like oh yeah i kind of like these guys but we're gonna do this now you know and that was just a really nice kind of thread to see through the whole book i mean it was friendly competition in most cases but it was definitely competition <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely was yeah and and right at the beginning i thought it was quite funny that I was, I was talking j- just previously about how these bands didn't really know that each other existed. Yeah. Uh, and there's a there's a part in the book where uh, Andy McCluskey from Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark um, talks about hearing the Normals' Warm Leatherette um, in Eric's nightclub in, in, mm. in Liverpool for the first time. And he's just like, oh, my God. It's like yeah. someone else is already doing what we want to do. You know, th- this is the thing that got them to sort of, to sort of start moving. Yeah, and and like how how Annie Lennox and the Eurythmics, Dave and Annie were so upset when they had her Yaz come out because they were like, "Oh my God, we're working on that sound," and then boom, someone already did. You know, it's just yeah, yeah, it must have been incredibly frustrating for them because I think you know all these people were sort of using the same machines, mm-hmm. uh, so so they came with the same set of sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, as a, an, uh, as an aside, um, I don't even know if it's in the book, but Phil Oakey from the Human League uh, made the point that of of all the new records that were coming out, everyone was just using the preset sounds that synthesizers already made. They weren't making their own sounds at all. They weren't actually pushing these machines to any sort of limits. They oh. were they were just basically getting them out of the box and plugging them in and all using the same things. And I, I think you're right. They started listening to each other's records and saying, "Oh, it's like that." What's that drum machine? And you know, what's how did how did they make that snare sound? You know, uh, you know, without actually using using a snare. And and they thought we have to use that, and then we have to get a newer thing that we can put on to make our record more modern and more cutting edge and more exciting than than that one. Um, so mm. it was yeah, kind of extraordinary. And although it feels like the right feels now like the rivalry was 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 friendly, I, I wonder if it. Mm. It always was. <laughs> right. <laughs> I get the impression that there is a lot of 
people being pushed and you know yeah. they're pushing the machines to do new things but they're also pushing sort of where they where they are um yeah. and i think that that's kind of interesting and i think too that they're pulling in mo- you know aspects of modernism and cinema and just like household noises like suddenly you know like what happens if we play a ceiling fan you know at and then speed it up and slow it down there's all this weird sort of innovation it's almost like the 20s with jazz jazz musicians just like messing around trying to figure out what they're doing and i think that the ability of the synthesizer to give them this like flexibility is really a profound focal point of the 20th century in in popular culture yeah I, i absolutely agree and i think the other important thing about the synthesizer was that you didn't have to be a musician to play it um, so that there, there was none of that, you know, having to go out and, you know, buy your guitar and then sit in your bedroom and strumming it until your fingers bled, you know, until till, till the calluses uh, developed, you know, for years. And then having to do the sort of the, the pub circuit or what, you know, whatever the equivalent would be for you guys, um, you know, the, the tiny sort of horrible rock venues. You know, these, yes. these, these, these people, like I said before, they could just take this thing out of the box, they could plug it in, and they could start making noises immediately. Uh, and they didn't have to have any of that prerequisite. And I think that is probably the essence of how startling these new records were, because they didn't follow any of the rules. They didn't follow those musical structures. You know, they didn't sort of, you know, no, no one had, had paid their dues as, as musicians. Um, they were just... I was going to say having fun, but I think a lot of them took it much more seriously than that. Mm. Uh, like, you, like you were just saying, Rob, it's like, you know, they were pulling in, you know, from from modernism and the Bauhaus and from cinema and from literature uh, and all of these things. It was, it was, it was, it was I'm, I'm not sure that there will be another revolution like it. Yeah. And I want to, I'm going to talk about that point really quickly. Um, there's a quote in the book from Eno. He says, I realized that there were certain areas of music you could enter without actually learning an instrument, which at my age, I certainly wasn't about to do. And I remember from that time, there was a real bias against synthesizers. And you had bands like Queen who would brag on the back of their album cover. No synthesizers were used in the making of this record. And certainly people that I knew and hung out with, and I'm going to I'm gonna totally out myself, I'll be perfectly honest, I was one of them, said things like, if you had any actual musical talent, you'd be playing guitar or drums rather than having computers make music for you, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, I've seen, I've seen you mention the antidote where the musicians union tried to ban synthesizers for fear that they might put proper musicians out of work. Where does this bias come from and why was it so prevalent? And what do you think it was that got over that hump? Uh, I think it came from, from progressive rock predominantly. And I mm. think it came from the progressive rock musicians themselves, because I think they set themselves up to as virtuosos. You yes. know, it's like Rick Wakeman, you know, yes. with his multiple keyboards, you know, and his sparkling cape, you know, spinning <laughs> like, like a magician, you know, it's like yeah, absolutely <laughs> a, a mad scientist kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think they, they 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 made it very very clear that this was not something that mere mortals could do. Um, and and I think that that was something that pe- people liked at, at the time um, because people wanted to admire that virtuosity. 
Mm. Um, I think it was punk that sort of swept that admiration for musical talent away. Um, so all of a sudden, you know, these, these guys were sort of, you know, post-punk, but they still had their Emerson, Lake and Palmer records. They still had their Yes records. You know, it's like they, they, those things were still feeding in. Um, and they were inspired by them in the fact that they'd seen them and heard them and they'd watched these virtuoso performances. Um, but they were sort of doing their own filtered through punk rock with the addition of all these other uh, things going on. Yeah. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, they could they could do things that sounded like real things without, like I said, without the necessity to spend years, you know, honing their craft. There was an interesting um, quote about Martin Rush, Martin Rushant, um, that basically he took the easiest way of getting things down, like an idea or something that it did, rather than having someone play it like for six hours and not getting the part, he could just feed it into the machine and it would come out. And like, that was his approach to making it, but also that he could turn out really good, amazing pop sounds and melodies from that machine. Yes, Martin Rushin's actually a really interesting character in in this story. Uh, and he he in himself sort of reflects the whole narrative of the book in that before he started working with Visage and um, uh, and the Human League, uh, he was a punk rock producer. Um, and before that, he was he was like a, an engineer for people like I think Elkie Brooks and very mainstream commercial <laughs> artists. And then he sort of stumbled into punk rock, uh, and he was the producer for the Stranglers and for the Buzzcocks. Um, so he did those things, and then he was in this office. He, he was offered a, a record deal, and he set his own label up called Ray, uh, called Genetic. Um, and his office just happened to be literally upstairs from the Blitz Club in London. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, so, although he confessed at the time to being the least fashionable man alive, yeah, he had a big beard, yes, yeah. wore a jumper. Uh, this sort of revolution in fashion and style and music was happening literally downstairs from his office. And, <laughs> and that just happened to be how he met these bands. So he was the first person to listen to, you know, the the the, the uh, Spandau Ballet stuff. He was one of the first people to listen to the Visage stuff. He was one of the first people to listen to Simpsons Human League stuff. So he was kind of well-placed and also he was... He was agile enough to adapt his his his, his approach, um, but you can still see that sort of punk rock immediacy um, coming through. It's like he wasn't interested in the process; he just wanted to get to the, the results. final the, the mm -hmm. final results that mm -hmm. presumably he could hear in his head. How did your experiences, you know, working for MTV Europe and at a label? sort of influence and then knowing a lot of the artists and, and as well as spending all the time doing the research, how did you sort of keep your perspective in line like on a straight line for doing the, for, for the book? Cause obviously, you know, some of the people um, personally, but then you have to write a book professionally. So how did you toe that line? Yeah, I think uh, it, it never, at, at no point did it feel like the book was like a professional endeavor. That was, it always felt like a hobby thing. Uh, and it always felt like it was separate to the, the real world. Um, and I, although I was aware that I, I do know some of the people that I was writing about, uh, and it's possible that that did change the, a little bit the things that I, I, I shared about them uh, and the things that were said about them, I, I don't think it, I particularly let it bother me. 
because actually the people that I do know who are the characters in this book, I think that they, they that I don't think there's anyone who would be offended mm-hmm. um, for, for me reporting that in 1979, the NME was rude about them. Uh, yeah. Uh, so so it, it felt like quite a com- compartmentalized process. Um, it was always sort of on the back burner. Um, it was always something that I was doing, um, not secretly, um, but I hadn't really discussed it with any of these people until I needed to. Um, so I, I, I think you're aware that my day job, I work for the band Erasure. Um, so Vince Clark, obviously, is a huge character um, in, in this book. Uh, and it wasn't really until the book was finished that I spoke to him and said, by the way, <laughs> it's like, I've, I've done this. Wow. <laughs> and, um, you know, would you be interested in sort of, you know, helping helping out in any way? And he, he immediately said that he would be absolutely happy to do anything. So I took that as a uh, that moment to, 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 mm-hmm. to, to ask him to write the introduction to it. Um, which he agreed to do, um, and I, I sent him some pages. And to this day, I still don't know if he ever read them, um, but he, he, wrote, <laughs> he wrote a great introduction for me. Uh, That's fantastic. Uh, and then John, John Fox was someone else, um, and the, 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 the title of the book, which is it's not a very familiar title to a lot of people, um, listening to the music the machines make is a line from a song, um, and the song's called uh, Just for a Moment, and it's from the Ultravox album, uh, systems of romance uh, so it was written the words were written by john fox um and i was listening to th- that album in in my car uh and, and i was probably about halfway through the book process probably not even halfway um and i the song came on and i thought god well, that's a fantastic line and so I, I wish <laughs> that i could use that as a title for the book um and i, I contacted john and and he said of course you know just just use it he didn't even ask to read anything um mm-hmm. it's like the, the sort of the, the 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 trust that people showed me was was mm-hmm. quite extraordinary i think that access is actually one of the strengths of the book at the beginning of the book process my my intention was to talk to the artists much much more um but i realized that that kind of skewed the the the, the story that i was telling and um, because i was telling it from the perspective of the way it was received at the time, um, you know, the, the the fact that these that I would be asking people to view these events again from a perspective of forty years. It's like, do you remember, you know, writing that B side? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, were you in Studio A or Studio B? It's like, you know, the the, 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 the chances of them actually remembering that was would be fairly slim. Uh, and even if they sort of took a stab at it, I wasn't quite sure how reliable it would be. Um, so although they were very supportive and were very willing, I, I didn't use them as much as I expected them to. Um, and most of the people that I talked to, I didn't talk to in an interview situation particularly. Um, usually I would just send them an email. And I'll say, I'm writing about this record um, and, you know, so-and-so said this and the reviews were a little bit lukewarm um you know can you remember whether there was pressure from the record company or or something like that um and and it was kind of just to sort of fill some of the gaps that i couldn't fill on my own from from the research materials Um, and it seems to have worked and people seem to have responded quite well to it um it's like quite a few of the people who uh, are, are in the book have now had the book um and so far so good one thing that actually speaking about that and how things were received, I 
I was laughing so many times in the book when I read the actual reviews from the the press. Now, some, I mean, I, I I often find critics just hilarious anyway, but the British press is, press is especially like over the top with their words and their like harshness. And, some, and then they're, at the, you know, some are people are going crazy and like loving something and then the other people are hating it. But it just, it makes me think that uh, it almost like, it's so subjective and it doesn't really matter. They're just writing words about something that's, it might be so personal to a person, you know, all these songs that they were trashing. I'm thinking like, I loved that song, you know, when they were, and even like the bands themselves sometimes didn't like their songs. I think Japan was saying when they put second, I second that emotion out, they didn't like it. I'm mean, to me, that was one of my favorite songs when I was, you know, 17 years old, I can remember listening to that in my bedroom, you know? So it was just, it was, that was a very interesting and funny kind of thread throughout the whole book. A, a good example of that is Edward Pouncey in Sounds Magazine in his review of the Eurythmics, Sweet Dreams Are Made of This. He called it a lifeless plot of a song that drones on like a flood warning siren. <laughs> that is hilarious and brilliant. <laughs> and Wrong on all counts, but brilliantly stated. <laughs> And about the single Rio, my, one of my favorite was Record Mirror's Jim Reed. He wrote, all the joie de vivre of an ingrowing toenail. Yes. Okay, alrighty then. <laughs> well, I think I think that all those quotes sort of emphasize, too, that the music press really was caught off guard by this whole mm -hmm. revolution and how to respond to yeah, it. Yeah, right? as the public was, too, I think. Yeah, um, but I also think that, you know, the fact that a lot of great music of this time came out of, like, working cities particularly in the north more more out of habit i think that really affected it too but like just the complete way that the reception of this was received by critics yeah. speaks to it and i you know i think one of the great things that i liked about the book is that i feel a lot of this music that i loved growing up or that i heard sort of circumspect by growing up has been validated now 30 40 years later as being really artistically innovative yeah, like Duran Duran just got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, to me, that says a lot. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, a lot of the bands in this book are now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because Depeche Mode are and the Eurythmics are as well. You know, so it's like it really has become validated. Uh, and, you know, it's like, and, and, and like you say, the, the press of the time, this 1978, especially at the beginning, um, were absolutely savage. Yeah. You know, it's like they, 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 they kind of had no good word to say about anyone. Um, some of the more extreme bands, um, Throbbing Gristle, um, for, for, for one, and, and Cabaret Voltaire, I think that their music was so uncompromising and so yeah. strange that the press didn't quite dare to slag it off like they did with the more poppy mm -hmm. uh, commercial sounding things. I have to I have to give you a, a big thank you for one thing in particular for this book. I have heard the name Throbbing Gristle before. I knew nothing about them. I had never heard them before, but reading this book, I dug them up and started listening to them. And good, unbelievable! Oh my gosh! So thank you for for giving me the inspiration to finally look up this band and see what they're about. And it's amazing. Yeah, they're they're yeah, yeah. That's well, that's that's an absolute pleasure, and it's kind of music to my ears. In the in an ideal world, 
what I wanted people to do after reading this book. It's like I knew that some people who would be reading it, a lot of people who'd be reading it, would know a lot of this stuff already. So it's like my sort of my twin aim was to include material that people didn't already know uh, and, and and hadn't encountered perhaps for you know thirty or forty years, and the, the the other side was hopefully people would try things that they hadn't tried before, you know, especially the the bands from the early part of the book, uh, and they would find new things to like. Um, so that's kind of like, like I say, yeah. music to my ears that you actually went Excellent. out and listened to, to Throbbing Crystal as a result of reading about them. That's that's brilliant. Thank you. So, Richard, I'm wondering if you're going to do this thing that is very British with with books when they like this when they come out, like when Simon Reynolds puts out some of his books and John Savage when he puts out some of his books, they put out like a CD or a record that accompanies the book down the road. Are you going to do that or are you going to put a playlist together or, you know, did you sort of have a musical blueprint for songs of where you wanted to go with the book and the narrative? Um, there, there isn't an album in, in progress. Um, it, it hadn't even really occurred to me that that would be a good idea until quite a long way into the process. Um, because like I say, it was like I was just sort of doing it in the background of everything else that I was in, engaged in. So it didn't ever really quite feel like a proper project until all of a sudden it was. Uh, and then it was kind of all too late. Um, but there are actually some fantastic compilations already coming through. Yeah, um, Ch Cherry Red Records over here um, are, are putting out some some, some quite brilliant um, electronic music compilations. Um, and it's sort of a year by year basis, which are, are, are well worth a listen. Um, so, so I, I haven't done that, uh, and there isn't really a plan. But there are, if you go to Spotify uh, and search for "Listening to the Music Machines," mate, there are some playlists. Um, yeah, which, I, which, I noticed which, that. Yeah, which yeah. accompany the sort of the various various chapters in the book. Um, so that's that's as far as it's got in, in those terms. <laughs> I was just thinking about the uh, you know the advent of MTV and and basically how it was a second British invasion for, for, you know, us receiving this kind of music in America. And I think, think there was, you were saying up to a point in 1983 where there was like 30% of the sales of, of records in the U S were from British acts. And I just wanted to sort of touch on that whole, um, you know, Genesis of MTV and how that brought those bands into our world over here because I mean a lot mm. of that music was happening over there and it wasn't necessarily on the radar of people in America and a lot of that comes from a lot of American acts had no interest in doing music videos they mm -hmm. didn't understand them they didn't want to spend the money on all the time on them right and a lot of the younger British acts were from art school and they understood the the marketing the the visual connection to the music they understood it in a way that american artists didn't yes yeah absolutely and i think this sort of touches on something that rob was talking about earlier it's like the the, the bands that i write about are mostly british they're not exclusively british but because i use the british press as my sort of um uh, research it, it tended to be them um but the, these bands like you say were were, were often uh, art school based uh, and like Rob mentioned, it's like they were bringing in all these strange influences to their music. So they were very savvy uh, when it came to art and literature and, and popular culture. Uh, and they were not shy about bringing those things in. And they could, because, you know, video was, was becoming a new medium and they were the kind of bands that they were, forward facing, modern, looking to the next thing. 
that it made perfect sense to them that video would be the place to go. It was um, a perfect like conflagration of everything yeah, happening. Absolutely. And it was just like a perfect bit of timing, really. So, yeah. so brands, you know, started to sort of have the opportunity to to to, to video themselves, uh, and then they could take that that further. They could, you know, bring bring in, bring in more to, to you know more narrative, more plots, more effects, um, you know, more art, uh, and, and they could do all these things. And that, as you say, you know, MTV started in in, in the USA. Uh, and there, there was a dearth of videos. They, they didn't have the content. Yep. Um, and, and all of a sudden, all these British fans were like, "Well, we've got a video." <laughs> you know, it's like, and, and I think the the most the best example of these is Duran Duran. Totally, hundred you know, yeah, percent. Who, who absolutely owned MTV at the beginning. You know, it's like they, they were so completely in sync. Um, you know, with 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 mm-hmm. what MTV's aims were, and they were just pulling out these quite extraordinary videos um you know it's like they 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 they, they traveled to sri lanka yeah um, uh, uh, quite early on and i think they made four videos in four days you know and they, they, you see them today you know they come onto 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 the tv and they, yeah. they still look like you know high production you know they weren't you know it's like you know it's like just out of shot it was you know it, it, it was it was you know hot and and, and horrible and, and and kind of you know low budget yeah, I couldn't believe when I read how low budget they were. I didn't really realize it. You know, I didn't yeah. think that they would be. I thought they were mm-hmm. expensive, but they, they were. look expensive. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, uh, and I think it, th- th- this also sort of feeds into this whole new way of making music because these bands were not doing the whole let's tour the club, the tiny clubs, you know, and build up a mm-hmm. following from the beginning. They had to find a way of introducing themselves in in another way. Um, and because the American way, I think at that time was still really to be doing those clubs to to, to sort of to to, to, to be uh, approaching um, their, their their careers in an quite an old school way uh, in comparison to Britain. Um, and, and I think also that's partly geographic in that obviously Britain is much 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 smaller, um, so you have to work less hard to sort of, you know, to, 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 to make an impact. Um, whereas, you know, in America, it's like, it's obviously absolutely huge. Yeah. Um, and know, and then, then MTV was really, um, the, the bands would be played so much on MTV that by the time they did get here, that was, they yeah. already had their built-in audience. They had, yeah, they yeah. were selling, were able to sell tickets to their shows because yeah. they, people knew who they were. Yeah, and, and British bands that didn't do particularly well in Britain could become huge, huge American stars. A flock of seagulls, you know, springs yeah. time for that, you know, because they worked so hard in America, uh, to, to probably to the detriment of their careers over here. Um, but, you know, it's like if you're going to be successful in one or the other, then, you know, financially it makes sense to be successful in America, where there's you know a hundred times more people buying your records, um, so, so yeah, so 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 MTV was incredibly important, you know, and and particularly in taking this music and and spreading it internationally, you know, that was it was it was key, yeah. I want to jump back to a previous point for just a minute. Um, we were talking about the affordability of synthesizers to the public. Um, and that's what sort of launched this whole uh, electronic revolution in pop music. But I want to I want to go back a little farther than that, like two decades farther, because this same thing was happening in with the sort of avant-garde classical composers 
in the 50s and the 60s. So you had um, Studio for Electronic Music was founded in Germany in 1951. And you have these composers sort of coming out of that scene. Um, Stockhausen worked as an intern, basically, for that studio and then started composing his own electronic pieces in the 60s and 70s. You had Varez, whose poem Electronique came out in 1957, uh, Zanakis Diamorphoses came out in 1957, and he continued to compose electronic pieces throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And, you know, I, I, I mentioned earlier how I had that sort of bias against the whole electronic revolution, but when I came to college, I was a music major, and I started to learn about these composers, and it really changed my sort of perspective on the whole electronic field. And I'm curious to know what was the awareness of that scene with these kids? Because they're coming up on Bowie and they're coming up on science fiction films. And, you know, you even have the Beatles Revolution number nine, which is pushing pop outside of what the typical song constraint is. And it's a completely new thing to most people who are hearing it. So what how did any of this stuff affect the way that these kids who were coming up and are buying the first synthesizers. Um, How did it affect them? I think it did to, to an extent, but yeah. maybe, maybe to a limited extent. Um, I, I feel that although Stock, Stockhausen was, for example, um, to sort of pull from, from your, your list, uh, was important, um, I think he was important on the generation that came after him, and it was that generation which was important to the people that I write about. Yeah, um, and, and it's like Rob made the point earlier that there was a kind of a, a jazz um, uh, sort of um, organic sort of jazz sort of type scene, you know, springing up around this. And I think that's very, very true of Germany in particular. So in the sort of the, the post-war Germany, while well, well, Germany is sort of starting to, to rebuild itself uh, mm. and rebuild itself as a different Germany, um, you know, with, with, with music, for example, uh, which doesn't hark back to the old days, but instead looks forward to a, a bright new world. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, Stockhausen and, and the German experimenters um, sort of paved the way for people like Can and Neu um, and the the, the, the the bands that are sort of now considered crowd yeah. rock um, to yeah. sort of use a, a slightly, you know, perjurative uh, word for it. Um, <laughs> and it. But those bands were the bands that were directly influenced yes. On, on the bands that I write about. Um, I so also think that they also had a huge influence on like Einstein and Neubauten and Psychic TV and a lot of those sort of like industrial bands that came along later. Sure. I mean, I think I think like Trent Reznor is much more Stockhausen than he is Vince Clark, right? Yes, um, so that I makes think, sense. I think as you get to industrial music, which is sort of the, the elephant in the room later, um, I think that's where a lot of that stuff really sort mm -hmm. of seeped in because people wanted to move on and hear something totally different. So, yeah, uh, it was, it was, it's interesting actually because um, we were talking earlier about starting and finishing the book, and, and I wasn't quite sure where to start or where to quite where to finish. Um, but I, I, I finished in 1983 basically because the last record I felt it was essential to write about uh, was Blue Monday by New Order. Yeah, um, because, because that record signposted so many, so many things after it. You know, it, it was yeah. that whole Arthur Baker, Electro, New York, 
that went into house and it went into you know techno uh, and and then you know the sort of everything started to fragment at that point into into subgenres and those subgenres would have subgenres of their own and it it just got so incredibly complicated but I love how you did that. And I love that whole, there was almost like that coda of like the late 80s to early 90s of how basically Kraftwerk and Gary Newman went to influence like electro-funk, early hip-hop, like Africa, Bambada, and that, and Malcolm McLaren with Buffalo Gals, mm. which kind of was the whole precursor to Frankie Knuckles and the Chicago and the Detroit sound and then Mars. And I just want to hold up because I then, this is when I was starting to work at Island as an intern, and I was so fortunate enough to work Mars and Eric B and Rakim and all these cool records that were really <laughs> up my alley. So we had the, that fourth and Broadway imprint that um, yeah. carried a lot of that stuff. So that was all just uh, really interesting that that like thread of influence through, mm. through yeah. any, you know, obviously until today too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that in 19, by 1983, it's like bands, like you just mentioned, Rob, they, they were looking further afield for, for, for new influences because it, it kind of felt by 1983 that everything was electronic. You know, <laughs> all, all, the, all, all the bands that sort of pooed yeah. in 1979 were suddenly coming out with electronic music of their own. You know, it's right. like, yeah. it sort of I, ran through, you know, yes, it's 90125, is it? That's I, right. I can never, can never remember the number um but yeah but so so when yes worked with trevor horn you know it it, mm. it was like it was almost like a, a circle um had, had, had been closed uh, yes and and, and, th and those sort of people who were more interested in the in in the harder edged things you know i think they they did they went back to noi and they went back to yeah to, to, to the kraut rock sounds and that became nine inch nails and front mm -hmm. two, ministry and, and the ministry and and, and all of these guys yeah yeah. I also think, too, that the sort of bookend between I Feel Love and Blue Monday um, is perfect for for identifying the club culture at the time. But I also think, you know, I was thinking, like, going into this, why the hell did he end it in 83? And that was my big that was my big thing going. It's like, OK, and I started to think about it. And I'm like, OK, well, after 83, you know, you get sort of like the rise of the duo. I mean, you get the Pet Shop Boys, you get way more, you know, you get Erasure, you get a lot. More. And by this point, you can't at some point you're going to go nuts trying to trying to, trying to write a book beyond that. So yes. once, and I think you did a really good job of sort of framing that, right? Uh, because it really does get convoluted. And also by, by 80, by 84, Cabaret Voltaire is kind of a different band. And yeah. um, there's some interesting stuff going on, but there's also a really big dilution of it. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that was a really good thing. And, you know, I, I was really glad to see somebody write about, because there's so much that's written about Blue Monday um, but I just wanted to see someone write about it from like a point of view that was just, Hey, it's blue Monday. Right. Um, because it's, you know, it's, it's sort of like the sing, sing, sing of the late 20th century. It's just relentless yeah. and it's incredible and it's still relevant. Um, and I thought that was a really good stopping point, especially since you set the table so hard with the craft work records and the, and I feel love. Yeah, I think we were talking earlier about how it felt like I Feel Love was a punk record. And I think that Blue Monday is e equally a, a, a punk record. It has mm. that, sort of, that, that sort of attitude to it. And what amazed me, actually, doing the research about um, Blue Monday 
was how much the critics hated it at the time. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> it absolutely destroyed it. And it's like, a, it, it was it was funny to me because I, I was writing the journalists' names and I was thinking, I wonder if these journalists will see this writing <laughs> and look back and think, I wish that I'd said something different about Blue Monday. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, how wrong was I? <laughs> well, you know, over here, people didn't love it either. I went, I went to a record store and... Um, I was buying imports and somebody's like, this is garbage, but you'll love it. And hand it just gave it to me in my bag. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, thank you for giving me an original factory friggin' copy of Blue Monday. That again goes to the thing. I was like, I mean, I remember dancing to that at Danceteria nonstop. Like that was just, you know, again, it's, it's one person's opinion, a critic or something, but it, it's really what the public thinks, you know? That's Absolutely. right. And you, you touched on the fact that you danced at that at Danceteria. And I think that something we haven't really touched on in this conversation is the importance of, of clubs. That, yeah. That's where I hear yeah. all this stuff, this really. Kind of grassroots thing, and particularly in taking this thing to America. You know, it's like it was the same kids who are watching MTV who were dancing in the clubs yeah. and, and, and spreading yeah. spreading this, this, this word. Yeah. I, mean, I, was, I was really lucky that in my formative years, I was able to go to a juice bar and, and, and hear all this stuff. And, you know, we saw the videos and we heard it. But... Um, they were, hey, we were under 21 steps. <laughs> so was I, but um, I was still going to them clubs. <laughs> but I mean, it was later when I was sneaking into those clubs, when I started to look like, when I was 18, I could look like I was 21, right? Um, but it's not easy to do that in, in Midwestern America. Yeah, it's not, true. It's, it's easier in New club. York. Yeah, yeah. Sneaking into a club in, is not, yeah. <laughs> but like, it just, it literally, it just, it was like a tidal wave over the youth culture of my time. Like mm -hmm. 83 to 87 when I was in high school, it was like, what is this, right? And suddenly all the kids with the angular haircuts that were like being hunted down by all the guys in, you know, uh, who, by, it, it, in like metal metal stud jackets, right? They were stopping and it was all kind of like this whole new, like, wait a minute, we got to do a reset on what we're doing. So I think, you know, I think that this sort of, this was more of a global movement, I think, than people initially thought it was. And I think a lot of these artists, as you look into going closer to 83, are beginning to realize that they're in the middle of something bigger than they are, right? And we haven't even talked about what this stuff did to Japan. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it, the, when, when Blue Monday hit Japan, and I feel love hit Japan, right? It completely changed the nature of how Japanese radio played uh, pop music. Um, and that, I mean, it's just, it, it's really fascinating to study sort of the permeation of this stuff around the world. I mean, Gary Newman, that, that very first two-way army record was like hugely influential in, in Japan. And then um, late, later on, like places like Mexico City and stuff were having these like amazing pop-up electronic music scenes based on these British records. Like, yeah. you know, it's fascinating. It's completely interesting. So. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a, it's a, it was a really interesting period of time to be writing about um, because it was so fertile and so exciting. And, and that didn't even just cons cons consign itself to electronic music. There was so much other stuff going on at the same time. Yeah. You know, so it's like, you know, when you were dancing in Danceteria uh, or you're watching MTV, then you'd be seeing the ska bands that came out of Britain, you know, totally. the yeah. and the beats. You know, and all that and there was a big yeah. wave of that here too, yeah. of American ska. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Yeah, and there's the the new wave stuff that was uh, Blondie and Elvis Costello and you know all of these guys and 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 and, and yes, so much happening sort of simultaneously. The Stray Cats, you know, sort of going back to rock and roll, and all of these things were happening simultaneously. Mm. You know, it must have been it, it was it was incredibly exciting here, but you know, over there as well. I'm I'm sure it was you know yeah. quite, quite and quite then you've got. And you've got at the same time, you've got Sparks going to England to work to take all this back to America yeah. later, right? Yeah. You've got Laurie Anderson who's doing her own thing and turning that, bringing the Stockhausen sort of classical element back to it and really making it like planting a flag for this as an experimental musical form, right? Um, so it is at the same time experimental, modern, and popular yeah. all at once, which I don't think you can say about a lot of. No, that's absolutely true. It's, it's also interesting that some of the more avant-garde American acts were accepted in Britain first, and because they became successful in Britain, they suddenly achieved that sort of cool cachet because they were sitting alongside, you know, the, the British acts. You know, so you know, Laurie Anderson, I think, was number two over here with O, o Superman. You know, so. Mm. You know, and it's like the, the, there is the, the sort of the quirkiness of those records appealed here, uh, fed into what the British acts were doing, and yeah. sort of reflected, bounced back, you know, to, yeah. to America, and, and America sort of, I think, took a, a, a second look at some of their their own groups, you know, that that that, that was was important. Like Devo, never probably would have gotten anywhere in America without Bowie, really, yeah. sort of carrying the flag for them. You know. That's so interesting that you mentioned that because I remember the first time, like it was yesterday, I remember the first time I ever saw Devo and that was them appearing on Saturday Night Live. It was like season two or three, long time ago. And I thought, what the absolute hell is this nonsense? <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I've kind of come around to them and in, in Atlanta, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. We, we're very fortunate to have a very good Devo tribute band. So, I mean, I've seen them and I love them. So it's it's so interesting the initial reaction to some of these things. It takes a little time to catch. It does up with take them, you off guard, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, it's like a, it, it sort of felt like you know I was talking earlier about how the British bands weren't really aware of each other's presence. It mm. felt like that was kind of happening in America as well, you know. And it's like that whole Akron. Is it? Do I pronounce it Akron or Akron? Akron. Oh, oh, so, you know, it's like all of a sudden the British press, you know, decamped to Ohio mm -hmm. because of Pear Ubu and because of um, of, of Devo. Evil, uh, yeah. And, you know, they were sort of, you know, desperate to find a new thing because all of a sudden, although they'd been caught, you know, on the back foot when the first electronic music came through, they, they kind of were starting to realize that this was something that they couldn't ignore. They couldn't necessarily dismiss entirely. Uh, and, and they wanted something that they could own, I think. Um, whereas the, 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 the spirit of punk running through some of the other early records meant that they happened despite the press rather than because of the press. Yeah. Um, so the, the press was anxious to find their own and they looked to America to find it. And, and Devo was absolutely huge over here just for a mm. short time, you know, but they were the, like the coolest, most interesting, most unusual. It's like they, they released almost nothing and they were getting front covers of, you know, of, of, of the major music press, you know, because all of a sudden it's like 
something is happening here. We're not quite sure what it is, um, but, <laughs> but we better tell you about it because <laughs> you'll find out about it and then we'll look bad. <laughs> Can you talk about, I, I am just both as a Doctor Who fan and also a person that loves this music, I am completely mesmerized by, you know, the work of Delia Derbyshire in bringing this music to the world and the fact that it's a woman who's kind of unheralded and unchampioned in the last two decades have really seen her sort of grow. But can you kind of talk about um, that sort of era of electronic music and what that means to the history of it? I think Delia Derbyshire, well, Doctor, it's difficult to know where to start. Um, I think Sorry. The, the interesting thing about being in Britain at, at that time, in, in the sort of, uh, this, this would have been the 60s, um, but in the 60s and the 70s, is that we had three TV channels. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that's all we had. <laughs> it's like, so anything that was on television immediately got an absolutely massive audience. Um, and, and that was the secret of Top of the Pops. You know, every, every Thursday night, it's like you would be guaranteed 10 million people would be watching it. You know, it was, you know, it, it, incredible. Um, and the, the, the fact that the BBC Radiophonic Workshop um, was responsible for some of the most striking sounds and themes um, from some of the most important science fiction type shows was, was absolutely essential. Um, and because, because as soon as Doctor Who was on, th th there was immediately this multi-million audience for it. Um, and it tapped into um, a spirit of future, um, which I think is also another important thread that runs through certainly the beginning of the book, is that this generation of people are the people who experienced the moon landing and then they experienced computers. And, you know, it's like all this technology was moving so fast and it felt like that future that we were promised with jetpacks and flying cars and you know a pill instead of a instead of a meal was was absolutely attainable um and because of this sort of spirit of future um science fiction was absolutely huge um over here so you know doctor who was was massive um and because delia derbyshire had provided those sounds, not just the sounds for the, 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 the theme, but the sounds that sort of, you know, were, were in the background. Um, it, 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 she, she, her, her influence on this scene cannot be underestimated um, because I, I'm pretty sure that anyone of the generation of people that I write about, if you ask them how important the Doctor Who theme was to them, they would all say yes. You know, and, and it's like, you know, for, from, from Depeche Mode to Orbital, you know, mm. would would, yeah. would would yeah. would would say that this was an incredibly important thing, and it's like I think that in the same way as we were talking about the impact of "I Feel Love" and the impact of "New Blue Monday," the Doctor Who theme was so strange uh, and, and and so um, groundbreaking and so other um, that it was something for people to latch onto, um, and the people who seem to have latched onto it the most was this impressionable generation of people who would turn in to the generation who wrote these amazing electronic mm. yeah richard thank you so much for spending this hour with us i thoroughly enjoyed the book and i thoroughly enjoyed talking to you about this the book the whole scene 
it is such an exciting time in pop music history. It was yeah. an absolute pleasure. I've really, really enjoyed the chat. It's like if it feels like it could go on for many hours more. <laughs> yeah, Good, really. The book, the book has so many things that you just want to delve into. It's me. It's really highly recommended. Please get that book, everybody. Yes, and, absolutely, and Richard. The highest compliment because these two are well aware of my um, vast and great dislike for Spandau Ballet. Right. Uh-huh. You have made me want to re-examine yes, Spandau Ballet. Yes, please do it. <laughs> yeah, re-examine the early Spandau Ballet records because yeah. they're very different from that very yeah. Different, oh, that, yeah. yacht, that yacht rock true and yeah, know, that's and that's kind of what I need to be reminded of. Right, they're so funky yeah. and, and awesome. And you also yeah. made me want to go back and re-listen to my Japan records, which I <gasps> haven't done in yeah. forever as well. That's what I was um, listening to this week. <laughs> yeah, I was listening to a lot of Japan records this week and just. Um, yeah. And, you know, yeah. as somebody that does a radio show every week, when you rediscover something that's been dormant for a while, it leads you down rabbit holes that are just great. There's five hours of my day. So <laughs> thank you for in the middle of 30,000 things I have going on, making me go down rabbit holes. <laughs> and I mean that in the nicest way possible. Right? Uh, I'm taking it in the nicest way possible. <laughs> You're very, very welcome. <laughs> well, once again, thank you so much. And mention the book one last time. Uh, okay, so remember uh, listening to the music the machines make, inventing electronic pop, nineteen seventy eight to nineteen eighty three, uh, is published by Omnibus Press. It's available now. Uh, it is the histories of the various pioneers uh, who invented electronic pop. And you have a Thanks. website too, right? Oh, I do have a website. Yeah, too. talk about that. So the website is called um, inventingelectronicpop.com. Facebook is electronic at electronic pop and Instagram is at electronic pop also. Fantastic. Thank thank you so much once again. We have greatly enjoyed our time with you. A pleasure. Really nice to meet you all. Thank you, man. Thank you. All right. So stick around. We're going to take a quick break, 30 seconds, and then we're going to be right back with our picks of the week. So stay tuned. Attention, people of Earth! Looking for a way to kill half an hour every week? Try the Flopcast! It's a silly podcast about cartoons, music, comics, movies, obscure pop culture from the 70s and 80s, and chickens. Join us! Bring coffee! We're on the ESO Network. And we're at Flopcast.net. Okay, we're back. What did y'all think of the Richard Evans interview? Wow. Holy he cow. Was so, he was, first so, of all, he was nice. so interesting. Yeah. And so nice. Yeah. So interesting. And it had so much great things to say. And yeah. yeah, his book is just, I really, really was, it took me back into that time of my life yeah. when I was, Absolutely. you know, a teenager. And I really felt like I was reliving those years. Yeah. Um, I, it led me to listen to stuff I'd never heard before. Like the, right. the very first two or three, um, human league singles I'd never heard you know oh. I only knew them from radio and MTV so I only knew you know don't you want me and after that point I'd never heard those early ones and they're so different mm-hmm. yeah it's yeah. good stuff he made me listen to stuff I never heard either um, and I hear a lot um, but he also made me sort of feel validated for like just the pummeling I took for liking this stuff in the 80s so yeah 
We're going to get to our picks of the week, but first we have some other business to take care of. Rob, take it away. So as is happening way too frequently than Steph Ryer, you probably like, um, we, we keep losing these giants of, of, of music of most recently, like our childhoods, right? So we lost Tom Verlaine on January 28th of television. And um, we talk a lot on this podcast about 1977 and how incredible it was. And one of the most uh, significant reasons why 1977 was such an amazing year and while both post-punk and indie music in the United States is the way it is, is because of television and their album, Marquee Moon. Um, I know it's sort of like this, one of the records that you get handed to when you say, I want to be a cool kid. Um, it's kind of one of the records now that they get handed and tons of stuff have been written about it. And Verlaine was the guitarist and uh, vocalist of the band. But it's one of those rare cases when you listen to Marky Moon that the vocalist and the guitarist who are the same person are both equally great because sometimes they do one better than the other. But he was a virtuoso um, of the guitar. His, his uh, vibrato style of playing was really great, really great at singing and that band is you know they only put out two albums they did a reunion album later um they were just an incredibly great band and way more innovative after they broke up than they were when they were around which is really sad but verlaine made also i think 10 solo records uh that are all incredibly interesting and fascinating and he played on uh penthouse by luna and gung ho by his former girlfriend patty smith um so again, this is somebody who left a pretty pretty big footsteps in uh, American indie music and post punk and punk and that whole New York scene as well. I mean, it's it's uh, kind of staggering, and you know, it's kind of like the bookend of Terry Hall when he passed away in December. We're losing these like people that created movements and sound and left giant footprints in in music, and it's it's very sad. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, let's do our picks of the week. So, Steph, why don't you kick it off? I have only been listening to my, <laughs> I mean, I swear Richard's book made me go down rabbit holes, just like yeah. Rob said. I was going down my Japan rabbit hole because nice. I haven't listened to them in so long and just realizing how much I love them and David Sylvian solo stuff. And so listening to a lot of Japan but I would shout out especially the song European Sun, which I absolutely love. Mm. Um, I'm still obsessed with Alanis Morissette's song called Rest that I mentioned last week. I, I really have listened to it like maybe 50 times. I can't <laughs> stop. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but so, yeah, it's it's really just I don't really have anything new. It's mostly like stuff, my Duran Duran records that I've been pulling out and, you know, uh, like Rob says, span of LA, but I have. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sorry, Rob. It's fine. But, uh, yeah. Rob, what about you? So um, they announced this week the Cruel World Music Festival lineup, which is a festival in LA. It's kind of like the counterbalance of all the hipster bands of the world now, but like Echo the Bunnymen, the first Susie concert in like 30 years in America. Oh my God. Bunch of ABC. Um, you know, lots of bands are playing it, right? Love and Rockets are playing it. And I, I okay. kind of knew when, when they when they canceled the Bauhaus tour, I kind of had a feeling we were going to get a Love and Rockets tour this year. And I think we're going to get a full-on 
Uh, I think we're going to do record too, but I'm, I, what do I know? But um, that made me dig out Love and Rockets a little bit, who I've mm. always been a big fan for. Because I remember um, at one point, Stephanie told me when I was in her office, okay, I get it. You like Love and Rockets. Um, <laughs> uh, but that first record, the seventh dream of Teenage Heaven, I've been playing that a lot just because um, I like the songs on it. And actually, Steph, one of the reasons why this happened was your husband. Oh, because we were talking about producers and production and the production on that thing mm. was really amazing. But it also sort of set this st- stage for how all these other beggars, banquet artists and sort of quasi goth artists would handle production in a yeah. studio. So I've been listening to that a lot. The seventh dream of, of teenage heaven. And I love it. And then um, we had uh, both Australia Day and Robbie Burns Day this week. And uh, Australia Day made me go back and listen to a lot of those old records from the Chills and the Clean and Straight Jacket Fits, a lot of that Flying Nun stuff. But Robbie Burns Day made me do the most happy thing I love doing, and that is going back and digging out my Aztec camera records. Right? Ooh, yay. <laughs> and, and Roddy Frame had a birthday this week as well. Oh. And um, that first record by the oh. Highland Hard Rain is oh, probably one of the records so of my probably one of my five records right I saw like, that tour did you see that tour uh I no I have never actually seen them oh, okay um but that record is just pretty astounding and stellar all the way through and it's fantastic and then also by reading Richard's book um I went and revisited Low which is one of my one of the oh, Bowie God. records I like anyway um yeah. but I revisited Low this week by David Bowie and I listened to it um, in in different way. I, I did something I never have done. I haven't done in about ten years with Low. I listened to it with headphones on, mm-hmm. and it's a whole different record. It's a whole different experience. But I also listened for a lot of the stuff on that instrumental side that I wasn't looking for. Like I'm looking for like how they did note changes, and just I was sort of listening for for more technical aspect than I would as somebody who loves Bowie, and. That thing, that thing's fantastic. I, I don't understand how people can't like it. Um, so yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, and 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 again, after I listened to you know David Bowie's Low, I I couldn't really find anything new to listen to that I wanted to hear after that. So that's my that's my week. All right, what about you, Alan. Well, I've got a couple of things, and. Um, the first two are ones that I wanted to get to a couple of weeks ago and kind of forgot to put on my list. Um, I listened to on Sirius XM. I listened to alt nation an awful lot, just so I can hear a lot of the new things that are happening. And there's a couple of things that have really grabbed hold of me the last few weeks. Um, and interestingly, they don't sound like anything else on alt nation because they're both pretty much acoustic guitar based. And the first one is uh, by a band that I've been kind of uh, attuned to for the past few years. And I've really liked what I've heard. They're called Young the Giant. And the song is called The Walk Home. And it's this sort of mid-tempo, acoustic-y kind of thing. And it's so good. And the second one is um, it's by a group called Talk. And I don't really know anything about them. This isn't their first release, but it's the first one that I've ever heard. It's called Runaway to Mars, and it's this very slow acoustic guitar piece that even has like an acapella break after the bridge going into the last chorus. It's so gorgeous. It is just amazing. And so I I highly recommend anybody to go check out those two tracks. And the third thing is 
and I kind of just uh, stumbled upon this this past week. I didn't even realize that it was coming out. Is a new single by Jethro Tull. No, it's wow. a. It's I don't even know how to pronounce the title of the song, but it's a phenomenal song. I absolutely love it. They have a new album coming out on April 21st called Rock Flute, spelled with weird characters and stuff. Um, and this first single came out last week, and it's excellent. I absolutely love it. I cannot wait to hear what the album is going to be like. Wow. Okay, so that's us for this week. Before we wrap it up, tell people where they can find more of you. Stephanie, where can people find more of you? People can find me on Bandcamp under my name. Uh, I have a website called therearebirds.com. You can find me on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour Music and on Instagram at there underscore are underscore birds. And of course, on all the streaming platforms everywhere. All right, Rob, hit it. Uh, so you can find me on uh, by my name on uh, on the Facebook uh, and the Twitter and post. Yeah, I know. Um, and also, uh, you can find me on uh, the Weekend Justice podcast with NeedCoffee.com and on the radio every week from uh, Wednesday nights from seven to nine on KDHX in St. Louis, streaming at KDHX.org. If you are busy that night. Or if you just want to listen to it during the day, that's not a Wednesday. All of the shows on KDHX are archived for two weeks, so you can listen there. Sweet. Alan? Ooh, thank you for asking. <laughs> um, you can find Cosmic Press at kozmicpress.com. And that's got a big old list of my books and the books that I've published from other authors and the list of my podcasts that I do. And we have our other co-host, uh, Anthony Williams, who is not with us this week. And you can find his podcast, Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. They are currently on hiatus, but they have four and a half years worth of episodes to listen to. If you're a Doctor Who fan, I highly recommend it. Go listen to that show. It's fantastic. All right. So we'll be back next week. Until then, take care. Have a great week. Keep rocking on and we will see you soon. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.